You're listening to a Scottish Poetry Library podcast. Let it all go. The new year enters. The earth turns in space. The waves crash on the shore. Let it all go. Hello and welcome to the first Scottish Poetry Library podcast of 2018. My name is Colin Waters and I'll be your host for the next 30 minutes of chat and poetry. And we have a real treat this month, for me as much as for you, dear listener, as our interviewee is Alan Spence. I've been trying to get Alan on the podcast for a while now and my New Year wish must have been heard for not long after returning to work in January... Alan and I sat down to talk about haikus, zen and the rivalry between Glasgow and Edinburgh. And I mention Edinburgh because Alan was, last October, appointed the capital's latest marker, which, if you're not Scottish, is simply Scots for a poet. Uh, In this case, the city's poet laureate. He's taken over from Christine De Luca, who did a fantastic job during her term, and I know I'm not alone in looking forward to seeing what he does with the post. Alan wasn't born in Edinburgh, he hails from Glasgow, where he entered the world in 1947. Although not an Edinburgh native, he's lived here for decades, where he runs the Sri Chinmoy Meditation Centre. As well as a poet, he's a novelist, short story writer and dramatist, with his first short story collection, Its Colours They Are Fine, coming out in 1977 to great acclaim. Echoes of his life can be heard in Spence's fiction. He lived for a short time in London in the 1960s with the experience feeding into the Capital Set sequence in Way to Go, a novel that came out in 1998. He spent 1972 in Milan and 1980 in New York, an era that's described in the final section of his first novel, The Magic Flute, which was published in 1990. Spence isn't, however, a confessional writer. He is, in fact, a spiritual writer, and it is perhaps in his poetry that we see this trait most clearly. Spence first came across haiku at school, which became his way into Zen. Soon he was, as he says, making the connection between haiku and a state of mind, a state of being, clear-eyed seeing into the life of things. Spence's poetry has revealed a debt to the Eastern tradition of poetry with haiku and tanka, favoured forms. Now, after his first book for haiku was published in 1975, it took Spence another quarter of a century before publishing a follow-up, and that was Seasons of the Heart, which, as the title suggests, follows the seasons of the year. In 2002, he published Glasgow Zen, which provokes laughter and contemplation in equal measure as Spence mashes up Buddhism and Glasgow wet. Clear Light, a third collection, followed in 2005. He's also collaborated in projects with artists Alison Watt and Elizabeth Blackadder, and I asked him about that during the course of the interview. I began proceedings by congratulating Alan. Alan, I want to start by congratulating you on becoming Edinburgh's new macker. Oh, thank you. It's very exciting to learn you're the macker. I've taken over from Christine DeLuca after her her stint. Do you have any plans or ideas for what you'd like to do as the city's macker? Christine was very busy. She was ubiquitous. One of the, the councillors said, every time you turned in, she was there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I can quite match that. But uh, the nice thing is that it, the post grows with the poet and uh, I'm finding my way into it. Like, there's a couple of lovely wee projects already that I've got involved in relating to the parks and green spaces in the city. Did something in St Andrew's Square, something for Sochton Park when it reopens, uh, something at the Gallery of Modern Art, especially uh, looking at their green space outside the, the, the main gallery. 
So that's a direction that I haven't forced that or pushed it, but those things are coming my way, so I'm, I'm following that energy. So you're really engaging with the, I guess, the modern cliche is public facing, the public <laughs> facing aspect of the job. Yeah, and those wee quiet spaces that we can find in the city that, that can be very nicely reflected by, mm. by poetry. I had one commission already, which came on me quite quickly, I thought I had until March to write a poem for the recipient of the Edinburgh Award. Mm -hmm. It's become a tradition that the, the marker writes a poem in honour. And I thought I had to march and uh, I took up the post in uh, October and I said, oh by the way, we need this for November. And you've got about three weeks. <coughs> okay. <laughs> and the recipient this year, fortunately, was uh, Sir Timothy O'Shea, mm -hmm. the retiring head of Edinburgh Uni. I hadn't met the man, didn't know an awful lot about him other than the, the, the press releases, but the more I read about him, the more intrigued I got, and I uh, came up with quite a nice piece, I think. Yeah. So did you have to get the muse on speed dial to... That was it, exactly. <laughs> and I made a, a, a rod for my own back. Uh, I was inspired by the, the Auden poem, uh, A Shilling Life Will Give You All The Facts. So I began mine, uh, A Shilling Life, just look it up online. The internet will give you all the facts. Great, wow, I've yeah. cracked this. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd set myself a, a regular rhythm and rhyme scheme there, mm -hmm. which I had to continue for a couple of pages. Uh, <laughs> but actually, that became a challenge and it became uh, a matter of the craft as much as the inspiration. Mm -hmm. So I, I got a lot out of it. And, and Sir Tim was quite chuffed with what I came up with. He's had his poem framed and hung mm -hmm. up in his office. So. Very nice. He shoots, he scores. <laughs> <laughs> you were born in Glasgow. I was. And moved to 70 years ago. <laughs> this is scary. What was your journey from Glasgow to Edinburgh? What were your reasons for coming? The Great Migration. It was, yeah, well, it was back in the 70s, and it was purely to do with the, the meditation group I was running. I was involved in a group through there. My teacher was a, an amazing man called Sri Chinmoy, who actually passed away 10 years ago. But uh, my wife, Janani and I had been meditating on his path since 1970, so a very, very long time. Uh, and at a certain point, he, we, we had a centre in Glasgow, and he fancied setting something up through here, so he asked if we wouldn't mind moving through, trying to start a centre. So that, that was the, the, the motivation, and uh, never regretted it. Still got strong links with Glasgow, strong links with Aberdeen, where I taught at the university for the best part of 20 years. So a good triple citizenship with <laughs> Nice wee triangle there. I was going to describe you as bicoastal, but maybe tricoastal. Tri yeah. <laughs> Something like that. Maybe people who listen to this podcast outside Scotland may be aware or not aware there's sometimes a bit of a rivalry between Glasgow and Edinburgh. So as, as a bicoastal citizen, yeah, yeah. what do you see as the sort of differences between the two cities? Oh, it's insane. I mean, that people see it as something divisive. I mean, you can get from Glasgow to Edinburgh quicker than you can get partway across London. Yeah. It's really part of the one, I can say, a big conurbation. It's, it's extending. It's, it's, apparently, they're going to meet sometime mm -hmm. fairly soon, somewhere around Bathgate. <laughs> Probably some great seismic upheaval will happen. <laughs> the, the Bathgate fault will, will, will um, come into being. But uh, no, I mean, the, there's a, a great photographer called Douglas Currens, who mm. back in the 70s, I think, he produced a book of photos of Glasgow and photos of Edinburgh. 
and very telling there was a photo of a, a, bus, a bus queue from each city and the, the Glasgow bus queue everybody was huddled together and obviously blethering the Edinburgh bus queue everyone was about four feet apart and we met me for a bus <laughs> and then they stand back when the bus comes in and they, there's a mad rush eventually mm-hmm. uh, that's the cliche that the Gla- Glasgow people are, are gregarious and Edinburgh folk are standoffish. There's a wee bit of truth mm. in that, but there are elements of Glasgow that are like that too. Places like Leith or Abbey Hill where I live, I've done for the uh, best part of 40 years. Uh, they have that same sense of community and warmth. Uh, although the community aspect of it is, is changing. I was mm. talking to a neighbour the other day and said when we first moved in, my street, Waverley Park, was very, very much old working class folk whose families had lived in the flat. They'd brought up families of five or six in it, effectively a room and kitchen. Mm. That's all changed. There's a lot of a lot of younger folk, a lot of rentals in, in the area. But recently opened up a bookshop in the neighbourhood, Citadel Books in Montrose Terrace. Yeah. <laughs> and it's amazing the number of folk who pop in, who live locally, who are either musicians or artists or writers. So rents here are still obviously cheap enough the, the folk can manage to survive while mm. still being close enough to the to the city centre. I wrote a play uh, back in the late 80s called Change Days, uh, based on a lot of oral history material from Edinburgh's old town. Mm. And uh, it was very much like the, the, the Glasgow I knew growing up in the 50s. There wasn't an awful lot of difference. I think there's a lot to Edinburgh that goes beyond those those cliches of yeah. the city of culture, industrial. There's an awful lot of crossover now. Maybe this is a point to hear a poem from Glasgow's End. So Glasgow's End is, uh, how would you describe it, Alan? It's a collection of haikus and Glasgow folk wisdom meets cosmic perspective. Yeah, a fair bit of uh, concrete poetry, yeah. sound poetry. There's a lot of play and mm. I had a lot of fun putting this compilation together. There was a pamphlet uh, Glasgow's End, which was uh, published by Print Studio Press in the early 80s, I think. Part of a really great wee series, which are worth quite a bit now. Mm-hmm. There was one by Tom Leonard, uh, Jim Kelman, Liz Lockhead, Alistair Gray. Fairly limited edition, nicely produced pamphlets with covers designed by the artists in Print Studio. So I came up with this wee sequence for that. And the, the present edition of Glasgow's End was, was an expanded one brought out by uh, Carnegie in about 2000, early 2000s. Uh, and the title sequence, there's two, two parts to it, and Zen operates quite often by this kind of question and answer uh, mode called Koan, where the master makes some kind of unanswerable question and the student has to go away and agonise over the response to it. So that this came out of just just pondering and that kind of thing, and in each case there's a wee, there's an opening line or, or title which uh, indicates some area of philosophical speculation, and then there's a wee Glasgow response to it, which I think is also a very Zen response. So the initial sequence goes like this: on the oneness of self and universe, it's all one to me. On the ultimate identity of matter and spirit, form and void. What's the matter? Nothing. On the suchness of things. I, this is it. 
this is a thing on identity in difference. Six and half a dozen on the implicit dualism of value judgments. It's awful good. And then about 20 years later, I wrote uh, Glasgow's End too, that the same muse revisited me. The first one quotes from a philosopher called Buckminster Fuller, very well known in the, in the 60s, whose theory was that our function in the universe was anti-entropic. We were to fight against the, the running down of, of life energy. On man's anti-entropic function in the universe, a wee bit order there, gents. On the music of what happens. One singer, one song. On truth being self-evident and sufficient unto itself. Right enough. On walking the pathless path. By the way, on the sound of one hand clapping, whished. So there, that's my. So it's maybe about twenty years since I wrote that. Time for Glasgow's End three, I think. Yes. Maybe it's time I did Edinburgh's End. Maybe oh, that should come out of the Micah Post, I think. Edinburgh's End. Edinburgh's End. <laughs> you have. This is what happens. I open my mouth and commit to something yes. like that, and then a, a verbal agreement. I like that's that. it. Find myself having to do it. It was a matter of some pride to me, by the way, that, that I mentioned that original um, pamphlet of Glasgow's End. And uh, Tessa Ransford, who set up the Poetry Library, told me that that was the first book borrowed from the Poetry Library when it, when it became a landing library. Historic, yes. Indeed. Absolutely. I'm quite chuffed at that. You've lived in many cities and at many interesting periods as well, so Aye. correct me if I'm wrong, you were in New York at the end of the 70s, early 80s? For a year we stayed there. My wife and I go there every year still because our teacher was based there for the, the most, of, most of his working life. Uh, so we've got into the habit of going every year and I get the opportunity to stay for a year in 1980, which was quite exciting. Because that was the period John Lennon died, wasn't it? It was. I, I managed to write about that in my novel, The Magic Flute. It yeah. was a, an ending of that particular period. The end of an era. <laughs> but, you know, I remember the night vividly, a very strange energy around, weird atmosphere. And the, it's me just picking up on vibes. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I, I got home after a meeting and then Paolo was staying with us. Oh, did you hear? John Lennon got shot. Yeah. So, yeah, it's an intriguing time. And then you were, <coughs> were you in London in the 1960s as well? Yeah, briefly. I spent, uh, I spent a kind of summer, a whole summer there in, in various periods of time. Because some of that feeds uh, into Way to Go. It does, yes, yes. And, and a wee bit in uh, Magic Flute as well. Again, a fascinating time to be there. I almost stayed on, but uh, just, oh, I'm glad I came back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then um, Milan, you've lived in Milan as well. Yeah, my, my wife Janani was studying Italian at university and had to do a year there um, as part of her course. I was lucky enough to get my first Arts Council bursary just at that time, yeah. enough to keep us for that, that year. So it was, it was a good time to be there too. Do you feel yourself a city kind of person? Are you more moved by the city than pastoral, bucolic scenes? 
I, I like to get away, I like to escape, but I've, I've always lived in cities, I always come back to them, uh, I think it's, it's in the blood. I was just very recently in uh, Prague, taking part in a poetry festival there, possibility of going back for a, a longer stay in a year or so. And uh, again, I loved it, there's just something about the energy, it's a really, it's a wee bit like Edinburgh, but, but very intensely, what I would think of as a, Think of it as a spiritual energy. There's a magic to it, and mm. an intensity. So yeah, I suppose I get very inspired by, by cities. Mm. To go back a bit, back to the start, I guess. What were your earliest encounters with poetry? When I was a wee boy at primary school, um, I just loved reading. I, I just couldn't get enough of books. Even before I could read books, I would buy them. I started out with comic books, and then graduated to books with uh, text under illustrations. Uh, and then on to full-blown novels. Uh, my dad was a great reader. He, he loved to read books. He wasn't. He, he didn't have any formal schooling. But that generation of Scottish men were very self-educated. He, he, regular member of the library, always bringing books home. So that 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 he passed that on to me. That love of books. Um, and then uh, as soon as I could write, like do joined up writing, I wanted to make that into sentences and stories. I remember being excited at school when we were given what they called in those days composition, you know, write a story about your holiday, holiday, <laughs> it's holiday, you know? <laughs> but if you've got a pet, write about your pet, oh great, I've got a wee dog, I'll write about my dog. Mm-hmm. And then one, one um, afternoon I remember a teacher we had got us to write poems. I was excited about this. This came back to me just very, very recently, actually. I was very influenced by Robert Louis Stevenson's Child's Garden of Verses, which I must have been reading at the time. Maybe we got it in school. But I remember this poem that began with, On Christmas Eve, when all was still, I was in bed with an awful chill. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a wee boy that's been reading books. He's been reading reading, them. Famous five novels. I lived in a room in kitchen and govern, you know, <laughs> in bed with an awful chill. <laughs> but all of that fed in. And then the same teacher, I think, got us to write something in Scots, which was amazing. An awful chill. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the influences were clearly Burns and, and the Bruins. Mm, a heady mix. Heady mix. Because uh, the poem I came out with, again, I, I must have had to revisit this recently for some reason. <laughs> the word melt uh, in, in Glasgow parlance meant to, to, to gub, to, to fight with, you know, mm. to batter somebody. I'm going to melt you, pal. <laughs> so this poem came out. I can't a man that melt it, though big polis. No, as you can, you can melt the law. In a black Mariah, blacker than black coal is. The police came and cursed at him a lot. That's not bad. That's for not that. bad at all. Eight or nine, I know that. And okay, there's. Uh, did, we didn't use Ken in Glasgow. That's purloined from the Bruins. Mm. Um, but other than that, I thought that was a pretty good effort. I think so too. A poet in the making. Absolutely in the blood. I was very proud of that one. So um, you actually, am I right in thinking, before your, your, your short stories and novels and plays, you actually had a collection of poetry out first? It was a wee, uh, a pamphlet. A pamphlet. Um, uh, to, uh, well, a small pamphlet of 15 haiku called Plop. 
published by, God bless him, Tom McGrath and his wife Maureen, who from their, their kitchen in Bank Street, Glasgow, they had a wee uh, poetry broadsheet called Poetry Glasgow, and they had nice stuff from Tom Leonard, Edwin Morgan, a few of the other poets around, and I gave them some haiku to do in that format, and, and Maureen thought, this would make a nice wee booklet rather than the, 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 the broadsheet format. So they did that as a wee, and they're probably worth a bob or two now as well. Yeah. If you're listening and you have a copy, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Track it down. Track it down. And, and, and then after that, uh, my Sweet Chinmoy had a, a, there was a press in New York that published his stuff exclusively, and uh, he'd read some of my poems and still did the press could do a nice little edition. Mm-hmm. Of so that was 50 haiku then called A-H, exclamation mark. Mm. And then came, uh, the, the, meanwhile, the, some of my stories had been in print in magazines and anthologies, but the, the collection of Scholars of Fine just came out in 77, which would be two years after the wee haiku book. Mm-hmm. And it's just, a, it's 40 years on, it's been reissued by Canongate and what is effectively a 40th anniversary edition. Very nice. Scary. <laughs> so yeah, the poetry came first, the, the, the stories were... were developing alongside those. Mm. And haiku is a form that you just keep coming back to. I know, I know, I just fell in love with it. I read them first when I was at school, uh, just saw one in a magazine. Didn't quite understand it because I was coming from a background of reading poets like Dylan Thomas, this mm. you know, thundering, apocalyptic, visionary, just very colourful and rich, mm. dense poetry. He, he called his own poetry ferocious and ununderstandable. <laughs> and to go from that to something as simple as a haiku, it was almost too simple, too clear. Mm. What's the catch, you know? But these wee poems stayed in my, my memory and my imagination, these um, resonances, which is what they do. Mm. Traditional image of dropping a stone in a pond and mm. letting the ripples spread out. So uh, I read... Uh, came in a book called um, The Way of Zen by Alan Watts, which had a whole chapter on haiku in it. And then a university friend of mine had a, a whole collection of haiku translated by a man called R.H. Blythe, published in Japan in the 1940s, actually, and still in print. Mm. And, you know, 50 years on, I'm now actually writing a novel about R.H. Blythe um, oh. and researching his life, yeah. Did he live in Japan? He did. He went there in the 1930s, which interesting time to go to Japan, Absolutely. you would think, yes. was uh, under house arrest as an enemy alien because of the, the, they just declared war. But he was also very heavily involved in the life and culture of the place. And after the war, he was tutoring the emperor's children. Mm. And during the war, his, his, probably his most influential book, Zen in English Literature, was published by a Japanese publishing house. Someone said to him, how come, how? Why did they do that? You're an enemy. Well, they promised. They said they would publish it, and they did. So there was that sense of honour, even in the midst of the, the, the craziness. And he himself spoke out you know, very forcibly against the war and militarism. Amazing, he, he kept his head, actually. Uh, yes, literally kept his head. Yeah, yeah. So a fascinating character and a very interesting life. He, he died there in the 1960s. Right, right. So the experience of being uh, effectively a prisoner of war didn't, didn't put him off at all? He, he was very well treated. Uh, yeah. and I, I think he was shocked when he heard about the, the brutality elsewhere. And again, he was quite outspoken about it. 
I mean, the thing about haiku that's really interesting, say, I, I don't like poetry because it's too hard. You know, I can, <laughs> I can get away with non-fiction, write an essay or that, because, uh-huh. you know, there's room to hide. You can, you know, you can have one or two sentences that are, you know, they're there to, to provide information, but it's not, not like poetry or short stories where the, I guess, the, the sort of ruling conception about them is every word has to be right. And with haiku, it's even more concentrated. It You've is. got to have every single word, idea, concept in place because there's only two, three lines. That's it. There's no waste. It's all. It's. Uh, I love that spareness, that, that that precision of it. And yet, because of that clarity and that focus, it does resonate. There, there's a lot going on behind the words, not in a necessarily a symbolic or a metaphorical sense, but just in that existential sense of making you completely aware of the moment but also the the, the repercussions of the moment mm-hmm. is what's going on around about at the moment. It's like the Japanese brush drawings where you get just a f- few strokes and suddenly there's a bird in a branch or uh, a bamboo. Um, uh, the, the silence around the poem fulfills that same function mm-hmm. and the picture becomes more, more vivid and clear because of that. I'll read a couple of wee ones again from this time of year. Overnight snow crystallised into ice flowers. Snow on snow making not a sound. In the snow the fox and I startled by each other. New Year, my neighbour has painted his front door bright blue. And those haikus are from Morning Glory, which is a book you did with Elizabeth Black. Yes. You've worked with artists quite a bit. I have, yes. It's a very nice collaboration, I find. I think artists and writers often have a mutual admiration. They both like to do what the other does. Uh, and I think they, they, they complement each other. I think I was a, a, a failed artist as a young, <laughs> a young lad. I was good at art, as they say at school, um, but the, the, the pressures were to, to move into more kind of academic side of things. But I've always had a great love for that. Yeah, I worked with uh, Callum Colvin and a couple of things, and Alison Ward. Mm-hmm. Uh, my Seasons of the Heart collection has images by Andy Goldsworthy. These are all artists I, I love and respect, and they have a great sense of the, the intensity of the moment in their own work. Uh, but working with Elizabeth was a particular joy. She has that very Zen sensibility. She herself has spent time in Japan, and a lot of her paintings are very influenced by, by Japanese brush drawings. Uh, so the, the, the opportunity to work with her came along, and I was, I was just thrilled. Uh, I was talking about it to a friend, a, a colleague at Aberdeen, and she said, wait a minute, you're writing these poems and Elizabeth Blackadder is taking them and illustrating them. How perfect is that? <laughs> you know? uh, yeah, yeah, life's not so bad sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And that was how it worked. She, she took the poems, she had them pinned up around her studio and she did the redrawing in response. Once or twice she asked if I had poems on a particular set. I've got a drawing of a peacock. Do you have a peacock poem? 
I'm sure it could come up with one. <laughs> and she had lovely wee uh, drawings of her cats, which I, I responded to. Nice. So that, that was entirely joyful and, and fulfilling. So it was a two-way street, really, wasn't it? It wasn't just... That was it, yeah, yeah. Winter, the cat clawing to get out, clawing to get back in. And with that, we bring another SPL podcast to a close. As usual, a few thank yous to make before we wind things up. So thank you, of course, to Alan Spence, uh, our new Edinburgh Macker. I fully anticipate he'll be a brilliant Edinburgh Macker. And I and the Poetry Library are really looking forward to seeing what he does with the post. Thanks to you for listening, and thanks to my friend, Will Campbell, who wrote and recorded the music that you hear at the start and at the end of the show. How do you keep in touch with the Poetry Library between podcasts? That's very simple. You can, of course, uh, go to the Poetry Library website, uh, which is www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk. We do social media as well, so we have a Twitter account, at By Leaves We Live is our Twitter handle. Uh, we have a Facebook page. Uh, just type our name into the Facebook search engine. I'm sure you'll come across Scottish Poetry Library sooner or later. And we do Instagram as well. I think that one's SPL Scotland. And if you enjoy pictures of poets, weird-looking old poetry books, the occasional snap of a poem itself, do check out our Instagram account. If you follow us, we'll follow you. Anyway, that's it for uh, another edition of the SPL podcast series. We're going to be back in another few weeks and I hope you enjoyed it and I also hope to see you soon. Thank you. this Scottish Poetry Library podcast. For further information about the Scottish Poetry Library, visit our website at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk, follow us on Twitter at By Leaves We Live, and find us on Facebook.